Today's scripture reading will be from uh, Colossians 2, verses, verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We read in verse 1 of this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae that he's in a great struggle or he's contending hard, some of your versions might say. The, the Greek word for this word struggle or contending is the word agony. And so my question this morning is, What is the intention of Paul's contention? He's contending, he's wrestling, he's grappling, he's he's struggling with or for something. And my question is, what what is his intention? What is he what is his goal? What does he hope to accomplish in this match? And thankfully, Paul's intentions are very easy to identify. They're listed for us. In verse 2 through chapter, I mean, in, through uh, verse 10. And we're going to be in the first five verses this morning. And next week, really have part two of this uh, same sermon. What, what is the intent of his contention? And so you can see here, if you just look at verse 2 through verse 5. First, his one intention is that the, the people's hearts may be encouraged. Number two, that they would be knit together in love. Number three, that they would reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Number four, that they would not be deluded by plausible or fine-sounding arguments. And number five, that they would be in good order and firm in faith. So those are the five things that we're going to talk about. There are several in verse 6 through 10. We'll talk about those next week. But these, this is the list. He's contending. He's wrestling, he's grappling, and and he hopes for something. And these are five of the things that he's hoping for. And I want to provide you two ways for you to personally engage with Paul's list. First of all, if you're someone here that's in any kind of a spiritual leadership role, you're a parent, you're a teacher, you're a small group leader, Uh, You're an elder, you're on the ministry staff, any of those sorts of positions, you're in a spiritual leadership position. And Paul provides an excellent list of goals for you. And so my hope for you over the holidays is that you would take this list in these 10 verses. You would take some time 
And you would ask, you would evaluate, first of all, what are my goals? I'm in a spiritual leadership goal as a parent. I'm in a spiritual leadership goal as a community group leader. I'm a spiritual leadership role as a pastor, an elder, a teacher. Whatever role you're in, first of all, I want you to ask, what are my goals? Because you are contending in some way, and I want you to know that what, that you have something that you intend to see happen. You have a, a hope. You have a goal. And then as you think through what your goals are, maybe you can look at this list and ask, are any of these my goals? Any of these things that Paul's listing, are they your goals? And then are you meeting these goals? The encouragement of heart being knit together to to reach the full assurance, to not be deluded, to be in good order, firm in faith, and so on. Secondly, the way you can personally engage with this list is for every follower of Christ, uh, Paul's intentions here uh, need to be strengthened in your own life. So if you look at these as maybe little gauges, how do you, how's your gauge look on these things? What's the thing that you need to be supplied with or, or shored up in some way? So that's two ways that you can engage in in this list personally. Before I get to the list, I want to set up the list by looking at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and all for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. These are a couple of important sort of background points that we have to understand. First of all, Paul isn't their preacher. Paul isn't their teacher. Paul isn't their community group leader. Paul wouldn't even recognize these people. He's never seen any of these people face to face. And so when, you, when I, ask, I ask this question, he's contending for them, he's struggling for them, but yet he's not their preacher, he's not their community group leader, he's not a Sunday school teacher, he's not a mentor to any of these people. So how is he contending for these people? And the answer, I think, is Prayer. Prayer is the strenuous activity that Paul is engaged in. That's what he's contending. That's the arena he's in. He's in this arena of prayer. And in his prayer, he's contending with and for them before the Lord that these things would be present in their lives. He's in this uh, wrestling match and he wants them to know it's a struggle. It's a, it's a, it's a fight. It's a, it's something that's hard work. And he's contending for their faith. It takes an enormous amount of energy to be contending in prayer. Jesus knows this extremely well. You'll remember the passage towards the end of his life, Matthew 26. He leaves the upper room. They're on their way uh, into the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there. All this pressure is on them. There's all kinds of spiritual pressure happening at this particular moment. He takes three of his disciples sort of aside and says, guys, this is a tough time for me. I need you to contend. I'm going to be contending in prayer, but you, you three, you, you're, you're my inner circle. I need you guys to contend for me. I'm going to, I'm going to go a little distance here and I'm going to be wrestling. My, my wrestling is going to be so great. I'm going to be sweating drops of blood while that's happening. Will you contend for me? Well, you can guess that the disciples were like, yes, yes, I will. And however long that time was, Jesus was contending by himself. He comes back and he finds his disciples asleep. Could you not keep watch 
for just one hour? Watch, he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. See, Jesus understands that when we're asked, he's asking us to pray. When we're praying, it's contending. It's like wrestling. It takes all of your energy to focus in on it. He says, watch out. Watch out for first temptation. Jesus knows that a great pressure is on them. An even greater pressure is coming towards them. And he understands that under great pressure, when the, when the heat is on, when your life starts unraveling, when things start falling apart, when you're under attack, when, when things aren't going to turn out your way, there's going to be a great temptation for you not to pray. To just say, it must not be worth it. I mean, nothing's happening anyway. Or, I'm praying and nothing's happening, so I must take things into my own control. There's going to be all kinds of temptation, especially under pressure, to run away from prayer, which is exactly what these guys do just a few minutes later. Now they're not just falling asleep, they're running away from Jesus. So Jesus understands that prayer is is contending. And he's saying to us, he's saying to his disciples, watch out. Watch out that that when pressure comes on, you pray instead of take control. When pressure comes on, you you stay in and you don't run away. Second thing he he notices, and we notice as well, is that the flesh may be willing, but the body is untrained. Or the spirit may be willing, but the body is untrained. So he says to his disciples, essentially, guys, I see you have the desire, but you have an untrained body. Your body is a handicap for you. It it, it prefers sleep over prayer. I want to ask for a show of hands who feel that pressure. Thank you, volunteers. We're all living through vicariously through that hand. You see, contending in prayer is not something you successfully do on the spot. Oh, sure, you can just kind of shoot up an arrow prayer. Oh, Lord, help me here. And Peter does that when he's sinking. You know, I'm not contending. I'm just like, Lord, help me. That's, I got, I got the, the distance it takes my feet to get to the water to my mouth. That's as long as I have to pray. That's, we understand that. But we're talking about something different. A contending in prayer is not something you can do on the spot. It's something you have to train for. If you're coming to an athletic moment, you're going to contend with somebody, whatever that is. You better be prepared. Your body better be prepared. I may want to do something, but if I haven't trained myself to do it, there's no hope that I'm going to have success at that moment. And the body has to be trained. And so it's a struggle. It's a struggle just to get out of your bed. To not fall asleep, to, to sit in a chair and say, God, I made it from my bed, but now I'm falling asleep in my chair. It's, it's, it's always a contention just against your body, just to pray. And Jesus is saying, watch out, watch out. There's all kinds of temptations to run away, to take control, to fall asleep. And then notice in verse 1, Paul begins with, I want you to know. Isn't that interesting? I want you to know that I'm contending for you in my prayers. Now, why is that? 
means that, hey, I want you to know how great of a prayer person I am. I mean, that doesn't seem right. So why is it that Paul's saying at this verse, he could just say, I'm contending. But he says, no, I, I want you to know that I'm contending for you in prayer. And my question is why and what's Paul's motive? And I think the answer is probably well said by Woodhouse in his commentary. Paul wants his readers to know the way in which God is working to bring them to maturity in their faith. Let me say that again. Paul wants them to know. I want you to know the way in which God is working to bring you into maturity. The way in which God is primarily primarily working to bring people into maturity is other people in prayer. A primary way of bringing people into maturity, yourself and other people, is prayer. E.M. Bounds, who wrote an excellent series of books on prayer, says this. What the church needs today is not more programs or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men of prayer. See, Paul understands that this church in Colossae, remember what we said? The church of Colossae is like the suburb of Ephesus. And Ephesus has got this great wonder of the world, the temple of Artemis. The temple of Diana, it's all a look at me kind of thing. It's all kind of mysterious and superstitious and, and, and magic. And Paul understands this is flowing off that city into their city of Colossae. And he understands they're going to intersect these people who, what I'm going to call, have showboat religion. They come in and they're persuasive speakers, he says. They come in and they're distracting people because they falsely, humbly represent themselves. Oh, do you see how much sacrifices I'm making? What is that doing? That's pointing back. I'm falsely saying wonderful things about myself to lift myself up. So there's all kinds of showboat people coming in. They're worshiping angels. They've been puffed up with visions all in this chapter. And Paul says, just don't fall for that stuff. That, that, that's going to come at you all at all times. And don't fall for that stuff. Don't fall for that showboat religion. The way in which God is making mature Christians, one of his primary means is prayer. It's struggling. It's contending in prayer. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was part of a great revival used mightily by God in the 1700s. Wesley had a specific room where he studied and he prayed. And you could go to that room, and in that room on the floorboards, you see two knee-sized, worn-out holes in the floorboard where Wesley prayed. How long does it take to make two holes in your wooden floor because of your prayer time? See, he's contending Yes, he's preaching, he's doing all kinds of organization, but he, he understands that the real power is flowing through this contending in prayer. So prayer is one of the areas in which that we need to be trained in. And maybe if you're a teacher, you're a parent, you're a ministry leader, uh, this would be the area you'd say, hey, this is the area that needs effort. On my part, contending, I've got to beat my body and make it my slave so I can pray instead of my slave 
my body. I'm a slave to my body. Now, let's look at Paul's list. First of all, hearts may be engaged. So, again, we're, we're looking at these. You're asking yourself, you know, what, 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 what about this as a goal should I implement to my, the people I'm leading? Or maybe what is it that needs to be worked on in my own life first? His first prayer is I'm praying that your hearts may be encouraged. Now, usually when we think of hearts, we think of it as just an emotional thing. He's got a broken heart. She's got a broken heart. It's all wrapped up in emotions. But when you hear it from a New Testament reader's perspective, it's the, it's the core of your being. I'm hoping that the core of your being, your, your mind, your will, your emotions, I'm hoping the core of your being is encouraged. It's, it's, it's still. It's solid. And so Paul's first goal for the believers in Colossae is to have this strong core. He understands life is going to hit them. It's going to be like hurricane force winds in a circular pattern, always revolving around your life. And his prayer is, I'm not really praying about those particular circumstances. I'm really praying praying that in those particular circumstances, you would have a, a calm, encouraged, solid core. Psalm 131. My heart is not too proud. See what the psalmist said? I'm not self-consumed. Second, I'm not concerning myself with great matters. I'm not primarily concerned about me. I'm not primarily concerned about these circular events in my life. What has he said? Instead, I've stilled and quieted my soul. I'm not primarily focused focused on me. I'm not unaware. I'm just not primarily focused. I'm not primarily focused on the circular winds of my life circumstances. I'm still and quieted my soul. I have a calm inner core. Think about this as just if this was the only thing you picked up from this sermon. What a great goal in prayer. You could use this all the time. Heavenly Father, I, I know they're under attack. I know that they have these financial, physical, relational difficulties. I'm not sure what the answer to all those things are, but my prayer is that their hearts would be encouraged, that at their core, they would have such a trust in you, there would be a calm place at their core. What a great prayer. That's Paul's first goal in his prayer. That's his first intent is that they would be encouraged in their hearts. Secondly, they'd be knit together in love. This little word knit in the Greek is 14 letters long. I'll save you trying to say it out loud. But the image is like a carpenter trying to to join two pieces of wood together. Trying to splice two pieces of wood. However you do it, you're trying to splice it so it looks like one piece of wood. And you don't want any splintering on that piece. You're, you're knitting these things together. And Paul understands the church is going to have great diversity. Great diversity in culture. Great diversity in race. Great diversity in age. Great diversity in economy. Great diversity in education. Chapter 3, verse 11 here in Colossians. Here, meaning in the church... There is not Greek or Jew, insider, outsider. Nobody's a foreigner. Nobody's a barbarian. Nobody's a slave. Nobody is free. But Christ is in all. 
See, Paul is understanding there's great diversity coming into these churches, and we're going to have to splice these cultures together. We're going to have to splice these people together. And the thing that he wants to avoid is any kind of splintering. Now, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? That you'd have a, a church full of diversity, age, race, economy, education. That you would be spliced together with people who are very different than you. And when the splicing together happened, there wouldn't be any splinter. And you couldn't tell the difference between me and you. We're all in this one unit. And, of course, I think we all would want that. But the question is, you know, how does that happen? I mean, that's an easy say, hard do. Chapter 3, verse 12. Look at these verses with me. We'll get to this later in this study. But look what he says. Put on, then. He, goes, he talks about things you're going, to, you're going to have to put on as a Christian, things you're going to have to take off. And this is what he says. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put these things on. Compassion. Here are all the things that's going to eliminate or reduce splintering. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if, if anyone has a complaint against another... And you can bet they do. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. That's, that's what you have to put on to avoid splintering. Now, we'll get to talk about these when we get to this sermon. But let's just take one, bearing. Bearing, is, that's hard work. Bearing is holding somebody else up. You see these moms that their kid doesn't quite walk yet or whatever, and they're holding them. They're in this kind of S shape, you know, and, and you think, man, the, the, the bicep of this mom, it doesn't look very impressive, but they're holding this, you know, 30 pound kid. She, she's bearing, you're bearing that weight. And it's it's hard. Your arms get tired of bearing somebody else. When you're lifting somebody else up, you don't get seen. Nobody knows what the foundation of the church looks like because it's bearing the weight of the rest of the church. And so if you're thinking about joining Christ Community Church, you're going to be called on to bear. Certainly, we're going to hold you up at different points, but part of your involvement is to bear one another, to do this so that we wouldn't splinter. Thankfully, Christ Community Church is growing It's growing in diversity. It's going to take hard work for us not to splinter. It's going to be hard to to bear up and push up somebody else's preferences rather than yours. Third goal, to reach all the fullness of assurance of understanding. This is an echo of Paul's opening prayer in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, filled with the knowledge of God. Remember this great opening prayer? He's saying, here's what I'm hoping for. He's really just uh, cut and paste, rinse and repeat. He's just saying the same thing. I'm circling back around. I want you to reach all the riches of the fullness of understanding, which is in Christ. I want you to be filled up with the knowledge of God. And if you remember that word picture, some of you will remember it. It's, it's packing a ship. So Paul, the the teacher, Paul, the preacher, Paul, the letter writer, he's trying to take these great truths like we learned about in Christ, who Christ is. He's the visible image of the invisible God. Chapter one, verse 15. He's trying to take these great truths and he's trying to pack it on the ship. The church, 
of Colossae into a life because he knows these people are going to need ballast. They're going to need wisdom. They're going to need knowledge. And as they sail out, there's going to be some rough seas. And he's saying you need, you need to be fully packed down with wisdom and knowledge so that when people come in, you know how, you know how to sail through. And they're going to need to be fully supplied with this wisdom because of our fourth point. Because people will come in and look at what it says in the text, delude them with plausible arguments. You're going to need to be fully packed down. You're going to need some ballast. You're going to need some wisdom because people are going to intersect you like a big wave at the side. And they're going to try to delude you with some kind of plausible argument or mislead you with fine sounding speech or entice you with a persuasive words. Let's say you were a freshman at UNC Chapel Hill and you enroll in the New Testament class, New Testament 101. And the reason you enroll in that class is because you have heard a lot about the professor. He's very distinguished. His name is Bart Ehrman. He's written a lot of very popular books. You see him on the History Channel many times. And as he opens his lecture, he says something like this. And these are mostly put together quotes by him. You're a freshman. You're 18. You've come out of Christ Community Church and you've chose, you couldn't get into Furman, so you chose Chapel Hill. I understand not everybody can go to Furman University. So you got stuck at Chapel Hill. You wanted to take the Religion 101 class. You thought everybody knows Bart Ehrman. He's the guy. He, you see him on television. And you're, you're a Christian. You, you have faith. But this guy's the smart guy. He's very easy to listen to, very persuasive. And this is what he says. There are nearly 6,000 ancient New Testament texts. And in those texts, we have nearly 400,000 textual variances or differences between the texts. You get this old text of Mark and this other text of Mark, and you start reading them, you find variances. They're not the same. 400,000. In fact, then he says, we have more variants than we have words in the New Testament. And I used to be an evangelical Christian myself, but after I studied the New Testament text and I saw all the variants, I realized the Bible can't be reliable, so now I'm an agnostic. And you sit under his teaching for a semester. You've just been hit with a very persuasive argument. Very fine sounding. And if you don't understand how to think about what he's saying in the right context, you're easily going to come out of that class saying, I don't know if I can trust the Bible anymore. I don't know if I can trust my faith anymore. I guess I've ended up as an agnostic. That happens over and over and over again, not just in his class, but many universities. The the argument Ehrman makes is fine-sounding. It is actually true that there are nearly 6,000 ancient New Testament texts, and there are 400,000 textual variances. But see, if you're not adding to your wisdom, if you don't see yourself as a ship who's in need of this increased knowledge, then you're easily going to be just tipped over by this side wave coming at you. And I'll send you a, a link to a, an argument for, a, about this. be better to, to hear it than me explain it. But do you see, these delusions, these fine-sounding arguments, when did they begin? Genesis chapter 3. Hey, you can be like God. Who doesn't want to be that? 
It's just a fine-sounding argument. And we've gotten knocked over again and again all the way through history. Paul understands they're coming at him. They're coming at us today. And so his one of the intentions of his contention and prayer is that they would not be deluded. What a great prayer if you're a spiritual leader. I'm just praying that, you, that, that my people, my friend, my, the person I'm mentoring, my group, wouldn't be knocked over with fine-sounding arguments. And finally, verse 5, he prays this for this congregation, that you would be uh, in good order and firm in your faith. These are military terms. So Paul's the general inspecting the troops. You know, you imagine the, the parade of troops going by and he'd say, I hope you're in good order when I come and see you or I hear about you. I hope you're firm in your faith. I, I hope that you have a, a disciplined formation, that you're a cohesive force. Uh, many of you have seen or most of you at least have heard about the movie 300, the, the 300 Spartans that held off. The, the tens of thousands of Persians in that great battle in Thermopylae in Greece. And, and how did these 300 well-trained soldiers fight back tens of thousands of Persians? Well, there's lots of factors, but one of the factors is that they were a cohesive unit. When, when these soldiers got around because of the, the shielding on their legs and the shield that they had and the, and the helmets that they had, it was just like this, this shell that was impenetrable. You couldn't get by it, and they could keep advancing. But everybody had to advance as a whole. We couldn't have any crack in the line. You've got to be this one cohesive force. See, Paul is saying, I understand there's going to be all kinds of diversity. There needs to be all kinds of diversity. You've got to be knit together so there's no splintering. And then you've got to advance as one formation, carrying one another, protecting one another, encouraging one another, and advancing the gospel and repelling persuasive arguments. That's the picture. What a, what a great prayer. If you're uncertain what you should be praying for, just take these verses here. They form a great foundation of structure for your prayer. And I'm going to just stop here and let's just take a moment to evaluate. How's your prayer life? Paul uses the word contending to describe his prayer life. What word would best describe your prayer life? Second, if you have a spiritual leadership role, what are your goals? How do those goals match up with Paul's? If you're a follower of Christ, what, what area needs to be strengthened in your life? It's a great day. Every Sunday would be, but it's a great day to come to the table, is it? Not coming together. The diversity coming down to the one thing that's holding us all together. And I would offer just as a warning, if you're a, a long-time visitor, not just the first time, but you're disconnected from a church, you're like a soldier out of formation. I'm not trying to say whether you're a Christian or not. I'm just saying you're not in formation. You're just over here sort of wandering around. You've got to fight your own battles. You don't have anybody sort of on the side to behind to protect. 
And whether you get involved in this formation or another, that's not really my primary concern. My primary concern is you get connected so that people can hold you up, so people can protect you, that people can uh, shield you in some ways. We come to the table, everybody's invited who's committed to Christ. You've said, hey, I'm, I'm all in. No, I'm not perfect. I come with a great limp maybe, but I'm, I'm committed. If, if that's not you, I would ask you just to sit quietly and ask yourself, what is it you're all in for? What is it you're committed to? Is that thing going to really supply? Or have you been maybe hit by a wave at the side and you, you find yourself maybe, I've been persuaded by a fine-sounding argument. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, on the night you were betrayed, just before the Garden of Gethsemane, you looked at your disciples. You understood that they would try to take matters in their own hand. They would run away. And so you said, this is my blood. This is my body. I'm, I'm preparing to give it for you. And now when you gather back around, I want you to know what I've done. I want you to remember I want you to know that I'm with you. I'm, I'm interceding for you. I'm standing at the right hand of God the Father. I myself, I'm contending for you on your behalf. Lord, bless these very common elements for great grace, mercy, strength to the life of your servants, your soldiers, in Jesus' name. Amen.